0: Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. The very best of last week's rugby coaching webinars and podcasts reviewed by host Phil Flewellyn and his special guests.
1: roundup rodeo i'm your host phil llewellyn thank you for joining us for season two as we delve back into the world of sports coaching my guests will be presenting their key learnings from a piece of content of their choosing and we then discuss its application and implementation as always i'm delighted to have another two wonderful individuals join me this week so if you'd like to introduce yourselves and tell us your current role
0: Well, hi, everybody. I'm Dan Abrahams, um, sports psychologist. Um, I'm very much freelance, uh, working as a consultant with um, a number of sports individuals and teams. Uh, And I also have my own um, podcast, if I'm allowed to talk about it, Phil, it's called uh, The Sports Psych Show. Um, And yeah, I spread myself across all sports, but especially golf and football. So uh, that's me.
2: Thanks, Dan. Uh, my name's Abby Brady. Uh, I'm also uh, a sport and exercise psychologist, and but my present role is as a head of department uh, in a university, St Mary's University. And uh, I'm really excited the kind of department I work or the people I work with in my department, uh, working coaching, uh, be that rugby, football or our particular specialisms, coaching science uh, and psychology, as well as teaching. So that's the kind of that's what our department's comprised of. And uh, yeah, I'm just really delighted to be here. and really looking forward to it.
1: Oh, absolute pleasure to have you both on. Thank you very much for giving up your time. Uh, really, yeah, really excited for this one, if not slightly nervous, talking to a psychologist is always a uh, you know, slightly disconcerting experience. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm sure I'll come
0: through it we, We've already worked you out, Phil, yeah. so yeah, that, that we're, we're there already. It's pretty obvious. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we'll do that summary off uh, after the live record. That's fine. Yeah. Happy that. That's it's great.
0: best. It's for the best. <laughs> uh,
1: before we get started, just a reminder for anyone listening to check out the blurb for links to all the content we discuss and recommendations to other high quality content. Um, so, as a stroke of luck, you both chose the same thing, which is um, which is great. I love that. Um, so, yeah, by all means, let's uh, let's run with it. Dan, I think you're going to go first, and we'll see how how we discuss the the book and in which direction you both take it. Excited.
0: Well, that book is um, by, it's called the long run by Kath Bishop. Um, subtitle is the search for a, a better way to succeed. Um, and I actually, um, chose this for a number of reasons one of which was I actually interviewed Kath uh, not long ago for my podcast which is is due to come out in November and um, Kath was amazing absolutely awesome and it's a it's a topic that I'm really fascinated about basically uh, I suppose Kath is asking us to broaden our definition of winning uh, I suppose the question she's asking is, you know, what it what is it to win? What is success? Um are we a loser if we finish second? Um how do we give ourselves our best chance uh, to win? Um uh you know, sh- sh- should we adopt a win at all costs mentality? Um if if we do, is it is is it worth it? Is it worth having that? Uh, win at all costs mentality so lots lots of sort of little nuance and little questions there and um, um the look the, the book is divided it's it's a really um fascinating read A really um it, it's a it's a simple read but it poses these challenging uh global questions it's separated into three three parts um uh she she starts by in part one by asking us what does winning mean and she looks at the language and the science and the history of winning which we can you know abby phil we can we can talk more about and um, in part two how our obsession with winning holds us back and then in part three um, she gives her she gives us her formula for uh, uh, success if you like uh, a new approach to winning where she introduces us to her three c's uh, clarity constant learning and a connection and look I loved all the parts but that part that final part was uh, was, was brilliant because she's, she's introducing to an audience an alternative way to to view winning to um, I suppose strive to touch excellence uh, in a more humane and holistic manner so she's she, she's she's laying out the map if you like um, to to explore different ways of winning um so look i'm sure we'll put far more meat on the bone um throughout this hour um but it was uh it, it's a great read and and kath is really i really recommend listening to her in whatever podcast she's on because um she's uh she's a captivating individual and she's uh
1: yeah highly talented uh highly influential um individual fantastic no yeah i've got loads of questions buzzing already but Abby, do you want to jump in with, with your take and then we can kind of explore both together?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, well, Thanks, Dan, because that's, that's a brilliant sort of skeleton you provided there of, of the book. And um, you know, even when you open the book, the uh, testimonies inside the cover and you start to look on Twitter and you see what people are reading it are saying, and it is, it is, it can transform how you look. But until you get a book like this, that brings it together... You've always got a part argument which means you'll always be it always just be that's a nice idea And anyway let's crack on and move on with what we normally do and what why i think this book is so powerful is that by bringing it together and providing a a, a really simple accessible uh, so great stories first of all story after story after story really powerful and um I think it is, you know, as Dan says, we've got this map, this opportunity to do something different. Unless you bring all those bits together, you're left with an idea, but no way of getting there. And, you know, you've got a bit of the puzzle. And I think what Kath does in this book is bring so many pieces together that it could really enable. And she even starts to bring in stories uh, from various coaches, uh, actually quite a lot from rowing as well, her own sport. And that makes the book even more powerful because she's been there and done it in sports and obviously we're interested in sports so um but she's, she brings in from business she brings in from you know all these other spheres and it 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 makes it stops sport being this tiny microcosm that can just do its own thing because it recognizes their their problems with the win at all cost in a whole range of environments she, she doesn't deny either that that can sometimes bring benefits but as dan's already said that when you pursue winning in the way we presently pursue winning it's very short term and it justifies lots of things that as a sports psych myself and as somebody that is really really interested in supporting coaches to develop to, to really advance not only themselves the sport and to support athletes in the most um, sort of healthy way that you know it's not opposed to winning or doing really well or success or personal growth but it's it's good for life it's good for everything uh, so when you, when you don't shortcut so the present idea is that what she talks about is this dominant idea that winning's got to be achieved immediately so short term and what you end up having and I think we might end up discussing some of this is that creates lots of fallout that that creates so many problems with people how people can view themselves if you basically very few people will win but everyone else are losers and um you know it, economically if, if this was an economic strategy it wouldn't be very good uh, because people wouldn't buy into it if it was a product it would be very hard to sell because um you're gonna you know it's like a raffle where your chances of success are very slim um it's not a mantra for life but it's something you might buy a lucky dip every now and then but you won't live your life by lucky dips um not suggesting that getting to excellence is truly a lucky dip but th- there are so many things I think probably if I was thinking about the book or another book that would com- accompany this there's really perhaps some supportive information about how luck plays a role in all our successes so that we don't rush to be over you know claim too much certainty about formulas for winning so i mean there's so many things i could sort of pick up from but you know great that dan's provided with this this outline i feel like i don't know if that's what your appetite for any uh ideas or questions i'm ready to bounce
1: absolutely so i guess my first one can you just clarify when you say how we currently seek to win from either cast perspective or, or both of your perspectives, what what do you see that looking like currently? I think I think
0: for me, it's a sole focus on winning, and a trance-like state um, around "gotta win, gotta win, gotta win, gotta win." Um, the language is very ex- our language tends to be very extreme, especially in developing elite and adult elite sport. I think that we get very fixed uh, on the notion that we're motivated by winning. Um, whereas what we probably can safely say now is that as human beings, we're mo- motivated in multidimensional ways. Um, so, so for me, it's, it's this fixation uh, on winning rather than examining uh, that at, the, at, at a deeper level and broadening it I I suppose a breadth and a depth um what is competing or playing in your sport what does that mean to you um from a broader perspective the connections you create the learning the love of the game um uh your why, your purpose, what any kind of success in your in, in your given sport means to you beyond being on the podium or lifting up the trophy. Um, and actually, what we probably now know in psychology or believe or would purport is that when we become focused on those things, um, the winning really kind of takes care of itself so it's kind of broadening our focus and then deepening our focus as in let's focus on the performance and if i may say so as a sports psychologist the mental factors that are much more under our control in order to actually make that winning happen as well so i'm kind of um i'm kind of thinking there Phil, of a broadening and a deepening of the definition of uh winning or success uh, and if we do make it broader and we do make it deeper, we actually help winning to happen. Um, the the narrow definition of winning, which is being on the podium, which is winning the, the the trophy or lifting lifting the trophy. So a broadening and a deepening for me.
2: Well, you haven't left me much to go with there, Dan, um, because I, I, I can't, you know, broadening and narrowing, I, I totally agree with you. Um, so it's broadening and deepening, beg your pardon. Um, I yeah, totally agree. I, I think before we sort of sat in here, I just started to um, just make a few notes that you know, if if you overemphasise outcome, here's a few things that you undermine that you you say are not important. Um, even if you even if people can somehow hold on to some of these things, the general mantra, and we've all seen children that that don't win a competition, and whether it's a mini league or not even a league just just even a friendly what that does for people i mean even the concept of friendly in competition uh I, i'd argue what does that mean at times but um so i'll just i'll just go through some of these things but um if you overemphasize outcome as in win versus loss so that it becomes binary so one's good and one's not good you, you maybe don't pay attention to did you enjoy it um you know, be that the participants or fans, depending on what level it is. Um, was there any learning? Was there any personal growth? Uh, we all enjoy challenge. And, and I'll give you an example of why we know that, is that if you win very easily or you get absolutely trounced, as in you don't get to participate in skillful activity and coordinated activity with others, it's not much fun. So actually winning easily, um, I did some work with table tennis cadets uh, many years ago. And I gave them a little ranking, you know, but do you want to win easily, win close, uh, lose close or lose easy. (laughs) The very young kids just just want to win at any cost. And I I see what I'm working with here. You know, Um, and I suppose over the the period of that season, I was working with them. I was trying to help them understand that for skill development, close, you know, being challenged and just being stretched that little bit from where you are now, uh, or even being stretched a little bit more, but taking some learning from being stretched, that's going to help us move in a direction i say it was it was quite hard and when i've worked with te- with tennis players um sometimes being called in because the kids are having tantrums um you know it's competition and when it all costs gone horribly wrong um i see that so i just go through one or two of these other things so you know not only the learning the personal growth and the challenge what about the creativity what how how amazing is it that you're going to have this period of time in your life and even more now in covid when people, I think we've got we've got this chance for people to say, "Oh, I just want to come. I want to have a game," um, and how lovely a game is. I, I actually think COVID might have done us a favour for thinking about how how we value our opposition in um, uh, interactive sports and, and team sports that we can come together. That I need you. We need you, opposition, to have this thing we love, as opposed to that kind of dehumanising. Uh, them and us the warlike metaphors um but there's so many things you know for the recreation just that we don't know for sure the outcome how great that is which is ironic when you think a lot of certainly my experience high performance environments are all about you know formula winning and that but when we slightly move away from it what's exciting about it is that we don't know for sure um uh, anyway I, I could go on but there's so much um just the respite from life, moving away from high performance sport, people's identity, your connection with others, your own team, the environment, if it's outside, I've been to some beautiful cricket pitches and you just you keep looking around and You go, wow, this is gorgeous, this area. You know, it, there's so many things. The You know, Dan's mentioned how meaningful things are to people, um, how even a park run for someone might be a major achievement. It would be for me right now with my knobbly knees and dodgy ankles. It, it would be seriously significant though. I used to be a runner. Um, meaning changes according to, to you, how you're changing your, your personal circumstances, and to scrap all of that to have a young person, or a, hopefully, as we get older, we'd probably find some way of managing this. But I, I worry about the damage we do to, to young people who can't manage this easily, based on some of the ones I get to see and try to support. Um, the competition itself, the hot housing of talent. Um, it diminishes so many other beneficial outcomes, which I think can impoverish us all.
0: What I loved about what you said there, Abby, uh, I loved all of it, but one one little phrase you said to pay attention. It prevents us from paying attention when we have this um, microscopic focus on winning. It stops us or prevents us from paying attention, perhaps, to the things that got us hooked in the first place, right? It stops us paying attention to what is fun about our game, our sport. It stops us from paying attention to the joy of movement, motion. Um, It prevents us from paying attention to the bigger picture stuff, the identity piece, the purpose creativity as you said value the, even the environment what's around us you know <laughs> without sounding fluffy the birds and the trees but absolutely you know the, the being having been a professional golfer it's uh, you completely switch off from nature although you know if you think about why you got involved in the first place i'm not saying nature was the number one thing but hey you wanted to be outdoors right and you loved playing with your mates and then suddenly this obsession with winning and focus on winning meant you just want to beat the hell out of your mates which may pay a part play a part in the motivation but when it's the only piece of motivation Mm -hmm. when it's the only narrative when it engulfs meaning then I think it can be really uh, it can really suppress you and your participation the participation piece the engagement as well as the progression and the performance and I think one th- really important thing to say here um, I'm going to steal um, a paragraph from uh, Kath's introduction because I think this is important to emphasize she says this book is far from a blanket rejection of all winning competition or the desire to do our best it is certainly not about lowering standards quite the opposite it's about challenging the framework we put around winning competition and success in order to consider how we might do it better it's about looking at what we normally turn away from your attention piece there, Abby, or brush under the carpet in order to understand more about those occasions when winning doesn't actually bring meaningful success into our lives. It's only by seeing both sides of the coin, the light and the shade of what winning can mean that we redefine success and start to pursue ambitions that could go far beyond simply coming first. So I I just wanted to say that because I think a lot of people, Uh, start to think, us psychologists and and perhaps coaches who this resonates with we're saying well forget competition and let's just you know the old adage of let's give everybody medals and all this jazz and that we're not I'm certainly not saying that at all I know you wouldn't be saying that at all we're passionate about competition I'm passionate about excellence I'm passionate about gold medals and winning majors and things like that the the big question is and the and 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 the point Kath is getting across is let's do this better let's do this while maximizing participation let's do this while optimizing learning let's do this by helping people break records in that holistic humane more adaptive way i think that that's important to get across as well
2: yeah i love i love that and i one of the things that she puts in the book is that she is interested in and the long win is interested in hearing stories that aren't uh, how about people come to win that aren't the standard stories that you got picked up and hothoused through the, the talent pathway of a sport to be the you know people do win that way of course um, there's also a lot of fallout and a lot of damage you've only got to look at deselection um, and maybe it's me I I wouldn't say that I'm I you know I've got my finger on the pulse of everything that's published but I don't see a lot of information I don't see a lot of literature that talks about the damage done by deselection. I I don't hear many people saying, oh, you know, my son or daughter got dropped from this academy, uh, and I suppose I am talking team sports here because that's what's in my mind while I'm talking, but, or any academy in any sport. My son or daughter's, um, or my sister or my brother, um, or my partner's been, um, you know, let out of this academy, a high-performance sport, and all they're gonna do is carry on trying, and I'm sure they'll get back in. What, particularly for young people, when deselection occurs, that's like the end of. That's, that message uh, says no door shut i don't think i don't hear many coaches i know coaches struggle with it as well don't like doing it um but when i think about the way some club and i suppose i'm talking about certain professional sports trawl through talent with this, this net and I, I i suppose i think about a fishing metaphor where you are really looking for just one or two but you catch hundreds and then you you keep them on the deck. They dry out a bit. You chuck back what, you know, wasn't easy. The tall poppies, the ones that stand out as pretty obviously talented. Um, so I find that I have a real problem with that, actually. And I think we could do better at keeping learning. And I think Kat talks about constant learning, that it's almost impossible to prove that style of talent identification doesn't work. Because so many people get so damaged by coming out they then don't have an equivalent I mean just just the exposure to the type of environment let alone the motivation the feeling that you are inside you are part of the 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 chosen ones Um, the difference in belief but also the exposure to particular opportunities of coaching but personally I would love I would love there to be some members because we know just from a whole range of research if you look at people that make it to the top they either weren't in that national age group or they weren't in they, they didn't they weren't always in the national team at the relatively younger age groups which mean why are we putting national teams together younger if they don't lead directly to the top so we just accept you know the fallout and I'm kind of on a bit of a hobby horse there because I just I would like sport to be um more about learning which is what Kathy's you know it's one of the central themes for her book this this constant learning and checking in because I actually think one of the ways we're going to have to constantly learn is because we don't have that approach, we don't have the approach she's suggesting to winning, so we're going to be in a very long, I hope, uh, I'd like to think we're going to have to be learners to understand what this means for us so so that we don't try it, think oh no it didn't work immediately because we've we've only got short-term vision uh, frameworks and and chuck it out, you know we have to and um, you know I think there's various Chinese proverbs that talk about the person that's uh, thinking about mankind plants a tree that will be there in a hundred years or a thousand years, you know, not the tree that's gonna, you know, be knocked down in a, in a couple of years, that one that, you know, provides oxygen and um, balances and is good for the environment for the centuries. Um, I, I, I suppose I worry about the human uh, fallibility. Um, it, we must win on my watch angle. um, we see it in politics as well.
0: I think what I'm hearing there is that we owe young people a better experience within those pathways. Because no matter how good they are at a young age, it's almost cliche to say it now within our world that uh, progress is non-linear and we, we owe young people who are engaged in sport Um, because to start with, they love, they love playing football. They love playing cricket. They love playing rugby. Um, And then perhaps the adultification of that experience means that um, it becomes very serious for them. And I'm not saying children aren't serious about their sport. Of course they are. Of course they are. But we, as adults, as coaches, we need to be nimble. We need to be versatile. And we need to feed their passion for that serious nature of sport and that serious focus on sport but also um give them uh more broad-ranging experiences and deeper experiences and that that comes back to you know if we think of a young person in a talent pathway such as a premier league academy or a premiership rugby team um, we need to consider them as people uh, and therefore cath in her book because let's not get away from her book she's talking about helping young people and older people alike have greater clarity have greater purpose understanding bringing life skills um, into sessions coaching sessions coaching activities uh, uh, broadening the meaning um, of uh, playing sport. that, that uh, role of constant learning, so a constant uh, a, a selling of constant learning, uh, building connections, helping young people build connections. I'm not just at Chelsea Academy to become good at football. I'm also here to meet lifelong friends. I'm not just here. I'm not here at say Manchester United Academy, which is a very good. They're both very good academies, but I'm not here just to become good at football. I'm here to build a capacity to learn. I'm here to have a purpose beyond just kicking a ball or passing a ball, throwing a ball. Uh, I I think that's vital. And, and and let's go to the depth part here. I'm also here to learn about how I can improve my competitiveness, how I how I how I can win. And that's one thing I love about this book is it doesn't shy away from uh, formulas and methodologies related to how to compete and how mm-hmm. to win kath isn't just saying you know broaden your definition of winning and have a purpose and ident- uh, multiple identities and 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 a, a, and a bigger vision for what this all means for you that's there and that's vital and we need to help players have better experiences by delivering that she's also talking about achievement goal theory mastery rather than an ego orientation all the time she's 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 also talking about uh, a, a focus on performance in the intricacies of performance rather than getting carried away at, uh, about we've won we've lost
1: mm-hmm. again
0: coming back to your uh attention there a direction of attention abby so um yeah, I I, 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 love, I love the some of the themes coming through in the book and and how they relate to that and the, and the experiences for young people, and I, and last thing, look, my last point on this little bit is that I'm I as a sports psychologist, I'm, I'm passionate about excellence, and I think I don't think there's anything wrong with our governing bodies, uh, presiding over different types of, um. Experiences within sports. There's. I don't think there's anything wrong with having cultures that drive for excellence, cultures that more are more participative based, mm-hmm. cultures that offer just free play. I mean, we don't have many of those, do we? Hey, just come and play. It's always come and play, and we're going to coach you. Well, you know, there's a lot of very good people, especially in the t- Twitter sphere, talking about. Here's a few cones. Here's a ball. I'll just be standing by the side of the pitch. If you'd like me to, if you'd like a bit of coaching, here's a bit of coaching. So a culture of free play, a culture of participation, a culture of, uh, of performance and excellence. But as long as the culture of performance and excellence doesn't squash passion, doesn't crush um, enthusiasm and uh, for the game and uh, that holistic humane approach.
2: that sort of spurred me to think of two things. Uh, One, how sad I was once to, but both curious and sad to see uh, across my desk came, uh, this is probably 10 years ago, um, probably when we sort of first met Phil, Um, it was uh, was a review, a policy review of lifestyle sports. So things like skateboarding, BMX cycling, uh, surfing what it was pretty much doing was sort of saying how can we organize these so that they fit the structures that we understand sport to be um, that's one thing that came to mind <clears throat> and i i just so supporting your point dan that you know just just allowing people to be so where i live with a little trail a little kind of basically it's an area where they forgot to build or it was the land was too uneven we call it a nature trail it's great and i get around there uh, every so often um but <laughs> one day I was down there, and I suddenly saw that it had been officially called something. It was a walk by a particular um, uh, national sports organisation. Uh, it had a tiny little map, and it was now sort of suddenly a particular resource for them. And I thought, wow, it was just a piece of, sort of forest and bracken and whatever on before. So um, that kind of hijacking or taking over, I, I, I do worry that you know, where can people just be? without feeling they're participating and therefore must pay pay attention to how far they've walked or, or whatever. So sometimes I think organisation can undermine, and I do worry about organising competition in lifestyle sports for, for getting away from it. And actually in Cat's book, one of the brilliant examples she gives as a, a a way forward, it's towards the end of the book, she talks about actually in um, some of the like snowboarding, she, she gives the example that actually yeah compete it's, it's like a perfect blend of probably the next step we need to get to it's the winnings winnings important but trying something new trying a new move trying to get particular airtime is what people celebrate and that people reward each other they acknowledge wow that's tough and uh you'd hope that that could be something that everyone could acknowledge but the more we've got this big big industry not that i want to knock it in in particular but the more it becomes dependent you can imagine the pressure on a performer or a team when you've got this industry in a particular country or or region uh, if it's in a professional sport relying on this outcome and um, I've always been heartened when I've heard uh, particularly in rugby as it happens uh, particular coaches um, if professional teams calling people in to widen the kind of the idea to think about purpose and meaning that I hope it's not lip service because, of course, they still need to to win. But I, I just get heartened to hear, and Phil, you might have some experience of this, but heartened to hear about that, that broadening, you know, the scope of players, you know, trying to help them think about alternatives.
1: Uh, yeah, I think that's really interesting. There's a couple of other bits I, I'll, I'll unpick first if I can. I'm going to jump back a couple of bits. Just when you talked about all the things we're missing out on, and, and interestingly, this kind of links in different wording, but a lot of what we talked about last week and we were discussing Johnny Wilkinson's appearance on the High Performance Podcast with Jake Humphrey. And a lot of what we talked about there was just losing sight of the experience. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's that, yeah, there's there's so many more things or reasons we do something than just wanting to win. And, and Johnny talked about that loads. And I think he put it in, a to hear an ex-professional sports person come out and actually say that that was really damaging to him I, I think was phenomenal and and really then just I've thought this for a little while and this is something I try and build into my coaching is actually how much are we putting in the way of players to to connect that experience and and get back to almost that childlike state of just I, I play because I enjoy it and I love it mm-hmm. and and, it, and actually that shouldn't matter whether that's a world cup final or whether that's over the park on a Sunday morning Are they really any different? Do do we create a lot of the stories we tell ourselves around those bits as you go through a path where you go up the levels? Because actually, I think there's a lot of interviews you could probably find of players after, you know, world-class performances on any stage where they just go, I just loved it. They're not talking about, oh, well, actually, I had this strategy and this strategy and I was, you know, I really concentrated. They're just going, "I, I was just you know in the zone or the flow or what it call it whatever you want I was connected to something which was which was just incredible so yeah I wonder whether it's actually is our job more around reducing and taking things away and and allowing players to connect to what to to being themselves and and then a little bit my some of this is a question around do you think that identity and how we're aligning identity with winning causes some of the problems. So I'm, I'm wondering, we talk a lot about endpoints and arrival, or I've arrived as a player, I'm now in the senior team, or I've signed my contract, Or but if we flip that and just said, it's an experience and it's a, it, ultimately it's a journey, but the, the end of that journey is retirement, or you let's know, be extreme, it's death. Like there, there is no end point to your experience within sport. And I do wonder, because we start truncating and going, well, you've got this this stage of the pathway and this stage of the pathway, are we better off just going, explore it. Where, where you get is where you get. Actually, that, that doesn't define you as the person. And I wonder whether that's where we create a lot of these problems and a lot of the stress and anxiety and the dropout rate is oh, I've not made it as a rugby player, I've not made it as a footballer, so I'm never going to play again because my identity is gone with my failure. So it'd be interesting what what you two think of that.
0: If I could jump in there and, and talk about a little bit expand on your initial point, I mean, the word that was coming through there for me was I mean, you were talking about Johnny Wilkinson and playfulness flow states. And I I talk a lot with coaches about the balance between playfulness and seriousness. Um, And I think it's an enormous challenge. It's an enormous challenge at at that level. I mean, I've been lead site for England rugby and it is intense and, and to a degree, quite rightly, it's intense. Um, I'm, I'm, I wrote down the word negotiation. As you were speaking, you were uh, speaking there, Phil. I think that, Great coaching is often a negotiation. If we're we're going to go down this path of talking about playfulness and the value of that, I do think we have to be honest with ourselves and say, well, let's go back to, you know, if we're going to talk about Johnny Wilkinson, we're going to talk about the 2003 World Cup final. Could you have 15 players in a playful state? The answer is probably no. But then the answer is not, well, we want 15 players in a serious state um perform
1: i'm just gonna jump in can you just define for me what you mean by playful
0: i suppose for me and it's a really good question because i think language matters and everybody would be picturing different things when it comes to playful um yes creative um but also unshackled unshackled from res- from t- over- too much tactical responsibility like team invasion sports have principles of play and they have game models based on principles of play i i mean hopefully we're not going to get too much off topic here so please rein me back in phil if i do but principles of play have uh, team invasion sports have principles of play principles of play have uh, you know we build our game models off of that so so we have to have some structure and w- I mean when I was involved with England rugby and I can say this because Eddie Jones is on record of talking about structured play and unstructured play right and and perhaps balancing the two and perhaps injecting a bit more of unstructured play into England rugby but but we 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 have to have some structure there probably if we are going to have success win if i can use that word give ourselves the best chance to win a world cup in football in rugby so so there has to be that balance that balance that we can't just go out and do anything um so automatically there are going to be rules and guidelines okay so so players have to accommodate that um we can't just be involved in free play um however we can shackle players too much if we create a culture around, I mean, this is a very interesting culture around the one, if we go back to 2003 and Sir Clive Woodward, who was, uh, you know, a wonderful head coach, very successful head coach, um, but talked a lot about 1% and we want to have a hundred different 1% and then we've got marginal gains within British cycling. When does that become oppressive? when is that too much when does that take players out of their playful state into whether it's overthinking or a rigid style of thinking that doesn't suit them and I've had football coaches say to me well I don't understand this player because they're not taking it as seriously as other players in this English Premier League club I don't get that how can they not take it seriously I mean they're getting paid loads a week and you know they they, they say they just want to have fun and it's like because some players play best that way absolutely they get into flow if that's the term we want to use if that exists if it exists um, by being playful by being creative by being light maybe on responsibility Um, but there's that sweet spot there and let's come back to my point of negotiation we as head coaches, we have to have some structures, we have to have some boundaries and rules. Um, But what we can negotiate is how one exists within those structures and those, 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 those rules. Uh, how one experiences those structures and those rules and those boundaries and we have to be able to have the skill to negotiate with players as to how they're going to exist within that so it might be that somebody like johnny wilkinson needed to be more playful and needed to have a more playful training environment because it's still everything still stems back from the game day pitch right if we're talking about the adult elite level um it still stems back to okay what are my roles and responsibilities there how do i go about playing out how do I excel there however I do it there is going to influence my behaviours on a day-to-day basis on the training pitch and we need to be able to negotiate with players well what does that look like for you what does that feel like what will be we be seeing will we be seeing a bit more playfulness um will we be seeing a dead serious person who is is rigid within their responsibilities and love rules and loves guidance and loves instruction um I don't know if I'm getting off the point, Phil, but
1: that, 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 I'll jump in. Sorry. I don't want to interrupt. I'm just, so I guess when I talk about that, I'm meaning almost a oneness with the experience in the moment. So whether that is you enjoying those, that structure and those rules or whether that's you being playful or, or, or anything like if there's a spectrum or, you know, continuum of that, I'm just thinking it's that complete immersion in the moment where I'm not, conscious is probably the wrong word but i'm i'm not necessarily aware of any sort of separation of me and what i'm doing do you know do you know what i mean it's 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 quite hard to actually verbalize but abby's nodding so i'll
2: yeah so um so that you know dan mentioned it that be it called optimal experience or uh whatever it's it's most commonly you know something like that that being in the moment that's Sometimes time slows, whatever, but we tend to refer to it as flow or flow like experiences. Um, and, and some people feel they're quite sort of mythical, but and there is some suggestion that maybe not everyone gets them. So, but in my sense of it and my experience is that working with athletes is that most athletes do. Um, and in fact, the not surprisingly, because it feels so great and because there's a sense of feeling in control and um you know there's it, it's, it's a special moment when when you do something right uh or, or want to say right something feels e- well, it's not even easy but it's, it's like there's no there's no doubting for example uh sometimes for people that can be very visceral um and uh, sort of somatic but for others it's more tactical um different sports would have different things but sometimes it's about uh, just feeling like I know exactly what I'm doing, but without overthinking it. And often it's retrospectively accounted for. I realize, I recognise now that I was in that state. Um, because if you were too cognitively aware at the time, you wouldn't be in the state because you'd be aware of your awareness. Um, I, I, I don't, Dan, do you want to come in? Because I was going to probably slightly change the subject and I don't want to take your opportunity.
0: I, I think for me, just briefly, I think, um, I mean, you've eloquently um described, I think what I was trying to say there, which is there's individual difference. And and I think we need to be very, very careful with saying players only have an optimal experience uh, in a certain state. Uh, I think everybody's individual. And and that's when we come back to negotiation um, and um, the capacity for a coach to have better conversations with players in order to work out how they achieve that flow state Uh, and some players will achieve that flow state in something that's more structured and others will achieve that flow state it was something where they play the game that's uh, uh, in front of them so in the world of rugby uh, and i'm not an enormous expert on the personnel in rugby union but danny cipriani strikes me as somebody uh, and having gotten to know him a bit at England Rugby, is he will play the game in front of him, and he's not going to be want to. He's not going to want to be hugely restricted through instruction. Um, I think if we bring this back to Kath's book, um, it's coaches having uh, as much expertise as possible from a communication standpoint and from a, a psychological dare I use this word intervention standpoint, in order to to understand what a player needs. A player can't find zone regularly, a zone or a flow regularly, if they don't know what their optimal experience is. So it's helping players uncover what that looks like, so they can be at one within the environment that that they're uh, competing in. Um, I'm not sure if that answers your question, Phil, but maybe it gets a bit closer.
1: Yeah, no, 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 it's really great. I and mean, it's something I just quite like exploring with. We kind of explored it in a different way last week. And I, I just think it's one of those things maybe we don't, yeah, maybe we don't pay enough attention to. And, and I think I, I really like the point you made there. It's ultimately about having those conversations to understand the player well enough to try and create. And that's, that's the challenge of a, a coach or anyone that works in sport, isn't it? How, especially in a team. How do you get 15 or 20 or 30 people, all as individuals, all operating maximally within
0: any environment? Just before you jump in, Abby, sorry, two, two things I'll say there very briefly is I'll throw psychologically informed environment at you, Phil and uh, i think everybody needs to be better than, at that developing environments that are psychologically informed and having better conversations i would also and my my controversial point of the evening is this um let let's sometimes we have to look at retrospective accounts of experience skeptically and or lightly let's be a little bit careful because i tell you what I can tell you through personal experience, when I was a teenager, I damn well wanted to be the best golfer in the world. I had zero chance of that, by the way. But I wanted to be the best golfer in the world, and I made huge sacrifices. And if I could get in a time machine and go back, there wasn't a, a a, a, a hell of chance of changing my mind there. And I just wonder if some people who retrospectively talk about their experience, need to be asked the kind of questions that help them uncover whether they could have been changed at the time and whether maybe they look back with some regret but maybe at the time they they experienced flow or they um they enjoyed that the the behaviors they were engaging in if that makes sense I just I just I just think that we need to be a bit careful about what some people say reflecting back on their career stunningly controversial I do apologize but that's kind of how I feel
2: yeah I um whilst I I I, I'm going to sort sort of challenge that back a little bit because I think um a we don't hear from many people about their career in sport and in Kath's book She refers to uh, a really interesting story where uh, a rower, I mean, a lot of her stories are drawn from rowing, and it's a a rower who's been part of a losing team, so a very high international rower, been part of a losing team for a very long time, decides to stop, rethink their strategy, and then they become more successful. And she's sitting at a big launch dinner and um the do you remember this story dan in the book so kath sitting at a a table this story from the guest speaker's just been told they're very successful olympic champion now and uh somebody a a ceo or somebody very business leader sitting next to kath leans over and she says and he he whispers as if he's it's, it's heresy what he's saying and he turns to her and he says but i can't help but wonder about all the others who've also trained for the last largest part of their life what happened to them where are their stories did they get are they just they just disappeared and sorry I'm whispering because I'm thinking about the story that she told and, and you can imagine it at this dinner because we're all supposed to go wow you winner you fantastic person and, and not give any thought and there's there's some research that talks about the fact that when somebody's out of the limelight we don't pay much attention uh to them you know unless in and the very few cases they're going to become um uh you know they're going to stay in the in the public eye which is usually some sort of celebrity role or uh, you know they're going to uh, be in some tv program or, or connect in that way they disappear so um i, I, I suppose i'm going to challenge it because i think we do need to hear retrospective stories um because they add value and because they challenge the status quo that only hearing about winners is the only story we need to hear I think we need to, and young people coming into high performance sport need, in my opinion, um, or just even the talent pathway, need to understand what that means. Because I think otherwise we allow the dogma of the dominant mantra, as in this is about pain and sacrifice. And Kath even challenges that. Winning does—that's that's that's the way of winning. If it's uh, you you have to sacrifice everything, and we've got to work as hard as we can as quickly as we can. Well, I'm not suggesting. Look, it's tough. High performance sport is tough. But, at the mo- but because we get the buy-in that it has to be, we don't, it, it helps stop us thinking about it in any other way. Um, so it, it doesn't challenge, it doesn't invite other thinking. Um, so, and I wanna come back to a point, I think you, that you both made in a, in a discussion. And that's about, and which I really liked, I loved hearing Dan, you talk about, and, and Phil talk about this need to individualize. Well, I would probably say, unless we challenge, the mantra around winning, this is what Kat's saying in her book. What happens is we uh it's a sausage factory. We're getting them in, it's it's this factory line. Well, how is anybody, how is a 15-year-old or a 17-year-old going to do anything other than conform? How are they gonna work out really what's right for me? I mean, until someone says, Well, how do you warm up best? Or well, you know, what's your pre performance routine for the kick or for this? Or, you know, and then you've just got to get one. But they don't know themselves as people. And just under. so I'm gonna go off off on a little tiny story now. There's a a wonderful uh, group of uh, academics and practitioners who put together um, in in football, a product, uh, an intervention, if you like, called My Future Today. It took a long time to develop. Uh, It was on the back of some research um, with Chris McCready, Uh, involved Dan Jolly from the English Football League and a whole range of other partners that, that came on board and I'm very fortunate to, to see it develop and see it um, in practice. And what it was, it was it was about inviting young people who are um, in these professional clubs, in these academies, to think about their whole self. And it was very much trying to present some of the work from Pink and Price, um, Pink et al, Price et al, who talk about when you develop yourself, your whole self, your interests outside of sport, it's not about plan B. It's not about you doing well for later and I'll, bring, I'll link this to Kath's book in a sec, it's going to help you now. Because if there's more legs to your identity chair, if one's a bit wobbly or not going so well, you've got other senses, bits of yourself to draw success or interest or distraction from. You're, you're not, uh, you know, um, I can't think of what the, a, a metaphor to use, but you don't just exist in this sort of single um, area. So, so that's one thing. And I guess we don't have much research showing that, but now it is starting to come out and it means that you do better in the now and should something occur later that, you know, a long-term injury that could take you out for quite a while, you've got a chance of doing better then and making it back. So better now, better should an event happen and better in the long-term post-career if you've developed as a whole person. So my future today, it's absolutely wonderful. And I, I have to say, I was blown away. It's a whole day event, but I've got to tell you this story. And this is where, I realize we've, we need cultural change and this is what Cat is saying it, it's not culture is made up of individuals but we've got to coordinate to make an impact and when I used to go and see those those events so they would be hosted in a professional club with a couple of usually two sometimes three all the guys coming from those academies so you can imagine 60 70 uh, players their coaches and, and staff and I'm not going to say any clubs and I'm not going to say any names but what I was really interested in was not only watching the day and how it all worked and, um, and and chatting with the guys afterwards but I was also watching the coaches now because it was a really valuable piece of uh, not only an intervention but because it was linked to Chris McCready's PhD and the EFL really wanted to evaluate it was also very expensive to run I have to say um, they, they evaluated it in a, in a reasonably rigorous way Um it matched what I saw on the day. I used to see coaches reading their newspapers, just sitting there in the cafe bar. It was usually in a, a, a big lounge area that this thing was carried up, not paying any attention, just letting this identity thing happen. And what Chris shared with me and Dan shared with me afterwards was some of the interviews they had about how this course, this, this My Future Day event was saying, develop yourself. Is it music? Is it faith? Or, or, or um, entrepreneurship? Or Or volunteering? What can it be? And they, they had these wonderful uh, role models from sport that had these other interests. And um, engineering, science, it could be all different things. Think about Marcus Rashford right now, what he's doing. Um, some people might say, well, that's a distraction from his football. Uh, I, I might argue, actually, that might not only help develop him, but give him a, a, you know, a, a, a more meaningful cause. Um, as a, so I want to just tell you the story of what some of the young people, footballers, professional footballers, were saying happened when they went back to their clubs. Sometimes their coaches were in the room. The ones I was watch, I was seeing not particularly interested, but sometimes they went back to their club and they were talking to a, another peer in in the club, and they were talking. Oh yeah, I'm going to start to learn guitar, or I'm I'm thinking about doing this, and the coach would come in and say, "I don't want to hear you talking about anything but football in this club," and so I. I suppose, oh, why am I sharing that? Because Cathy's talking about us. Um, you know when winning is the only way it brings some really damaging when it's win at all costs it justifies a a coach talking like that to somebody it's not right Um, it's not right to foreclose people's identity when they're young if if an adult chooses to do that um, and they're properly an adult and I would probably say 25 plus on that account my view of young adulthood has moved to to 25 I, I don't look at somebody at you know 17 years 363 days and think child and then one day later think adult um certainly not the case and i would be pushing that boundary as i said to the mid-20s so that's i'm gonna step back on that now but i i have a real problem with the consequences of win at all costs so whilst we know it can be great it justifies some pretty shoddy treatment of human beings and particularly young human beings
1: I, i think that's really interesting you talk about even maybe just the narratives that the, the winners, inverted commas, create in in the stories they tell and, and whether they feel they have to buy into the social narrative that kind of happened before them. It, it, and I'm, maybe that's why Johnny's bit was quite unusual, because you don't hear very often people coming out and going, it shouldn't have to be that hard. It shouldn't have to destroy you mentally and physically to be worthwhile and everything else. And in just, I was listening to um, Malcolm Gladwell and his podcast on revisionist history. And he's a wonderful storyteller. But he, the one on uh, listening to in the car on the way back from uni today, was basically just saying, um, actually, it's he. He calls them kind of tier two people. So it's 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 not the the winners or or the the kind of mm-hmm. the presidents or the, the kings or queens or whoever the real front people. It's it's the people just under them. They're the stories you want to listen to because you get more from them because they've got less to lose. So if if I'm a Steve Redgrave or someone that's been hugely successful. Mm. Am I really going to rock the boat? Um, am I going to change that narrative? Whereas someone that, that hasn't quite had that level of success maybe has a very different perception or perspective of the story and how they're going to tell that. And yeah, it, it just resonated really nicely and I think, I think he's got a, and, and you've got a really good point there, that maybe they're the people we want to get stuck into a little bit more and, and find out you know how, how it looks for them. Mm
0: can i just briefly come back and just say that i mean abby i agree with everything that you're 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 saying and i would never want people to not share their retrospective stories that's a hundred percent what i'm not saying and and i loved your um mini story there and uh, i think there's some great work going on um whether it's with the football league uh, here um in uh, england um things like cast books other initiatives um, that give young people involved in sports especially developing elite sport the opportunity to acquire multiple identities and I think we're drip feeding through the messages to make those kind of decisions more accessible however I would I, I do want to labor the point with the word of warning here that a rebranding of success is complex and it's complicated and we need to be careful in terms of, and, you know, let's be clear, things like Kath's book are brilliant resources to help us as sports psychologists, as well-informed coaches, to be able to uh, create uh, the kind of environments that help our young people to flourish and to thrive. But that rebranding is complex and complicated and um that that narrative identity piece i mean we only have to look at the work by dan McAdams, that one of the leading personality scientists harry talks about that level three layer of personality science is based on autobiographical memory which is notoriously unreliable and um I, I don't say this to try to be controversial and i don't say this to say well all retrospective accounts are poor what i what i The reason I say this is because we all need to be better. We all need to be better at helping young people acquire multiple identities, have a wider purpose, do the things that Kath introduces into our books because we can talk about it, but it's difficult to do. And I experienced that when I was lead psych for England Golf. Because in golf, certainly over the last decade and a half, we've been living in a a culture, a post Tiger Woods culture back in the late 90s. This phenomenon came onto the scene, had incredible success very early. And every 16, 17, 18 year old who loved golf and was any good at it decided they were going to leave school and become a full time golfer. I mean, it was just incredible at the county level um, and at the international level and working with England golf. There were so many young people making decisions um, to play full time golf very, very early, turn pro very early, uh, crazy early, where they're not emotionally ready for it, especially in a sport like golf. And there, were, there, there it was a real struggle for myself and others to put a different frame of reference across to them. Yeah. Because they were pretty deter they were pretty determined. So I, I suppose perhaps in my own crass way, Abby, all I'm saying is this is all awesome and I, I think we speak from the same song sheet. I'm just saying we, we also need to recognize that some of these retrospective stories are pot- potentially from people that actually, if they get, got, went in some kind of magic time machine, went back to uh, being 16 years old, they were pretty dead set on doing their 1,000 golf balls a day, and they were pretty dead set on taking a 1,000 penalty kicks per day, et cetera, et cetera, and, and they were difficult to move. So I'm just saying we need to be as well resourced as possible, and book is part of that
1: yeah I, I think there's a really nice thing there we, we maybe suffer from your, you know are we shaped by our previous experiences or are my previous experiences shaped by who i am now? and that that for me is just a, and again this this was brought up on johnny's piece and people are going to start switching off if i keep talking about it anymore but i i just think it throws some really intriguing questions around exactly that actually what is the the person I am now telling that story yeah. is is going to be different to the person I am in 10 years yeah. telling that story. So yeah. it, it's not the same story. And I think there's there's definitely something in that. So yeah, very, very interesting. I'm really conscious of both your times, but it's not often you get a chance to have conversations with um really high-quality sports sites like yourself. So I this is completely off topic, and this is just a personal thing, but I've been umming and a about what around about pressure so what is pressure why and all these types of things so i'm going to try and explain this as best i can and then i'd be really interested in your opinions on that so um my issue with pressure at the moment is if pressure was real or true inverted commas why would it not be more constant than it currently is so if, if i'm just a standard community rugby player why is it i go out on one saturday afternoon and, and so I guess my posi- kind of position on what pressure is, is a perception of perceived expectation. So whether that's mine or whether that's someone else's in some sort of imagined future, why is it I can go out and be completely relaxed and pressure-free on one Saturday afternoon and then the next Saturday afternoon suddenly, without the game really changing, without it being a World Cup final or, or something else, why can I suddenly be hamstrung and... and you know buried under this this psychological pressure and it just it's thrown up all these questions of actually if it was if it was true would it not be a constant in how it affected me all of the time in that environment so that that's kind of where my head's at and I'd just be really interested in your take on whether that is completely wrong whether there's something in that or anything in between thank okay. you
2: so do you want to take that or do you want me to start first? I don't mind. I'll, I'll let you go first
0: then. OK, because you ain't in control, buddy. <laughs> the okay. master and his emissary. Uh, you aren't in control. Cognitive linguist George Lakoff, uh, incredible human being, talked about his work over the last 40 years, demonstrated, but that 98% of us is subconscious. Um, and without sounding too funky, um, pressure isn't an illusion. Pressure is very real for people. It has to be. That's the way we're designed as human beings. Um, you know, we experience that. Let, let's get away from the word uh, pressure. It's anxiety. Anxiety is part of neuroticism. It's one of our top five personality traits. It exists. It's there. It has to. It helped us survive. It helped to survive against opposing tribes. It helped us survive against saber-toothed tigers. And the reality is, is that it, it it is weird it is bizarre it's contextual I suppose it's why did I stand up in front of 10 people on the golf course watching me play golf and even though I spent eight hours a day practicing um, I was still terrified hitting a golf ball in front of people and yeah I can stand up uh, last year I went to Poland and stood up in front of a 1000 Eastern European coaches uh, without knowing a word of Polish Of course I was translated but I, I loved every second of it it's it's contextual it's why Colin de Young one of the world's finest personality scientists talk talks about motivation emotion uh, and cognition working in parallel rather than serially. It, you know, these things are mixing and matching underneath the surface, constantly scanning and, and, and assessing threats around us. And there isn't much logic and reason why one Saturday you experience it and another Saturday you don't. But what you damn well need is a, is a half decent toolbox to be able to deal with it when it does arise, when it does emerge.
1: That's what I'd say to you.
2: There's not time. a lot, not a lot I can add to that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that's cool. That that's really useful. As I say, it was just this thing floating around in my head. And yeah, I thought I might as well pose the question. So that there's a load I can go away and unpick there and, and try and continue that thinking around it. So I would
2: good. I would just want to add one thing though, that um and it's it's very basic. It's that pressure has to be perceived. And there's some brilliant work around sort of challenge and threat states. Um, how you frame this experience determines its impact on you. Or, 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 or not only does it influence how you behave, your motor fluency, your decision making, your broadened or narrowed uh, uh, attention or focus, your ability to pick up the right cues, your sort of thinking about other things and the capacity to distract yourself from the right cues at the right time, uh, depending on your level of skill. Uh, that wasn't very simple, actually, but so what I'm saying, it, it, keeping it in a nutshell, um, how you frame this activity and its meaning is how pressure arises or not. And, and you know, failure, uh, again, if we come back to Kath's book, um, linked to this, that if winning's the only thing, then not only does it stop you noticing other things, uh, or, or it may influence your behaviour to the point where you pursue that over the kind of shortest route to winning, as opposed to maybe some some other ways so um i I think dan's done a brilliant job at explaining the pressure to try and make it in people's more accessible um for people to feel that they could do something about it i would say it's how you frame the situation and you're more likely to frame it in a way that's threatening and upsetting if you think you don't have very much control if you have framed it to be something that is anxiety provoking and, and i will just throw a thing in here i have wondered almost all my life you know probably i was a, uh, a runner and it, it meant a lot to me and i thought i always loved team sports and i went into team sports to relax me because of an individual sports you know I, I, that was much more anxiety inducing for me and i but i have almost all my life thought well of course we made sports up we made up the rules and we can make them up and do them differently, and yet I've so in the same way. If I come back to Kath's book, I'm fascinated by we how um she talks about stories about doing things differently, and the thing that excited me a while back was how um, indoor athletics brought in different events. One being uh sort of devil takes the hindmost, and it's on a two hundred meter track, basically after a certain I can't remember one or two laps you've gone round. But if you're the last one, you're out. So what it does, it creates a mid race or coming up to the 200 mark, race for the line, and talk about make things exciting. And it was so challenging. I'm thinking, actually, you know, sports have created their three aside, five aside versions, and and things like that, uh, which I feel more a little bit about chasing participation numbers at times, which slightly worries me. Um, Sort of where am I going with this I, I guess I think we could be more creative about sport as a whole whether or not we were reading Kath's book but because we're reading her book and because it makes sense for the reason she describes as well and I think it adds well-being and it shares responsibility encourages people to be more co-constructors of their sport experience um and it just could be more exciting uh without turning this into the Hunger Games or something like that um you know Why do we treat sport as if it's this kind of um, grand canyon of rock that can't be changed or adapted?
0: And and I'd like to add there that Abby's far less pompous answer, far more effective answer than mine, neatly glues everything in because that challenge and threat states, for example, where uh, we, we talk about how we can take control of ourselves is the depth and then the experience, the fun, the the just, just the brilliance of being in motion is the breadth kind of trying to neatly tie it back in together because I just think that was the, the the best answer of the evening from Abby there I think that was superb so
2: thank you well, only because you provided all the foregrounding
0: we, we 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 teamed well together together oh, each achieves okay. more
1: eh as, as been on this, you've definitely posed me more questions uh, than answers which is which is great As if it's a perception my thought now is well can I chase that bit of reducing it do I need to perceive it would would be kind of my next question. And if I have to, for some reason, perceive it, I can definitely perceive it a lot, lot lower or less than what I did. So that that definitely gives me something to work on in terms of managing perception as to how important it is. Maybe if I focus on everything else, on the birds and the bees and the experience and the smell of the cut grass and the connections and the friendships and everything else, maybe maybe that just takes it takes it all away so mm, that's that's wicked great stuff um wonderful that was the main reason I got you two on actually if I'm completely honest I just wanted to disguise it as a, as a podcast so 24 weeks of lead-in just to get some answers to, to some questions that um yeah that I wanted to no that's cool um we will jump to your recommendations uh what um what is it that you think people should be uh, checking out and having a look at
0: uh, for me, uh, Phil, it's uh, a book by uh, Dr. Pippa Grange. Um, again, I've just interviewed her for the podcast uh, Sportsite show. It's called "Fearless: How to Win at Life Without Losing Yourself." It's it's a great book because and and it dovetails lovely with Kath's book. Um, and just about how to manage fear in the moment, but also how to um, broaden your ability to manage uh, fear uh, in your everyday life. It's very similar messages. So that would be my book.
2: Uh, And and I'm going completely off topic, completely off topic. And and this is a book that um, I'm gonna recommend. Um, So it's by uh, Caroline Criado Perez. It's called Invisible Women, but there's a bit here, exposing data bias in a world designed for men. Uh, I know we haven't really spoken about gender, but this came to light. We are doing a piece of research for the Football Association into effective coaching in uh, the women and girls game and getting players across all tiers, this is, and coaches across all tiers, male and female coaches, ideas about what that looked like. And I, I kind of had the opportunity to access a lot of literature that I don't normally access. I don't normally look at gender... But I found it fascinating, and I realised I need to look at that a lot more. This book came out at a similar time, so it's published last year. And um, it made me st- the research triggered it, but it made me realise that. In in and I want to link it to Cat's book a, bit, a little bit as well. That if we carry on doing what we've always done, we'll never have any ways to think. It won't be easy to think differently. So we we have to open our uh, so take lots of the advice and what Cat does at the end of her let's get some clarity let's get into more constant learning and let's make a connection with each other which she recommends she proposes some questions and tasks that we should do now we don't have time to go through them but one of the things I would say is let's question and this book Invisible Women I think for for women coaches for women players and for um, male coaches working in the women's game um, in whatever sport or or sports what I think this book does is, is maybe invite people once you've read it it's got so many incredible stories and you think because people might think it's a feminist bandwagon, but it's not. What it is, it's fact after fact after fact, and, st- and like Kat's book, rich stories that that show how when you have um, sort of you know non diverse groups working in anything, they come up with ideas that suit them, uh, whoever that is, whatever that non diverse group is. And this book happens to be about gender, and when decisions are made by groups. We typically sit on typical groups and um, group uh, leadership boards and so on. And when they're men, they make decisions that suit men. And this book is story after story after story, some incredibly powerful that make you realise, and I'll give you a, a tiny little extract that I, it asked, I'm i almost putting out there to people, what? how does that work in sports? Because sport has traditionally, yes, we're opening it up to women in, in some cases, you know, it feels, I can't believe in my lifetime that I'm seeing professional women's sport because I would have been, um, a professional I would have loved to have been a footballer but it just wasn't an option so I played with my brothers and then watched them and then got into running because that's something I was allowed to do but it, it was my passion for a while and I wasn't too bad but I didn't have anywhere to play it and this book invites us to think how how is what we're doing designed by who made those decisions and that it happens to be gender is important to me um, and I'd like it to be more important to, to people generally, and particularly when we're developing women's sport and men's sport. But what it does is provide these story after story after story that you just think non-negotiable. And I'm gonna give you a very powerful, tiny little one. Have I got time, Phil? Go just, free. it, yeah, yeah, absolutely. let so it, it gives a story. It says uh, one of the chapters is called The Drugs Don't Work. Um, and it's a story about how w- when men and women have heart attacks, more women don't recover and die, unfortunately, because what we tend to treat people with, uh, and the people that write the books and the manuals who, who tend to be men, based it on the characteristics of how men have heart attacks, rather than women. And I mean that, that um, that's a very stark. You, know, you might think, Quack, that's a bit shocking for this this kind of podcast. I'm, I'm sharing that to say this is this is hard hard data stuff. This isn't somebody's idea that just says we need equality. We we absolutely do need equality. But here's some uh, cracking evidence that shows that in everyday life, some majorly serious things are uh, biased towards some rather than others. And I I think we've got a lot to learn in sports um, because I think a lot of the leadership groups have been one very similar group. Um, You might remember Will Carling said something um, many years ago about a certain group of people um, uh, that that made up the leadership in, in rugby at that time. Um, I won't say it on, on air, but um, that's what happens. You, you you get this kind of groupthink idea, this echo chamber of how things were. So, uh, apart from me, I almost thought should I review, review this book, but I didn't think it was sporty enough. But I think I'm I'm saying read that, and then let's turn the ideas in that book into questions for us to look at in sport. Um, and if anyone is out there wants to do a dissertation in it or an MRes or PhD, come see me. Oh, we'll need some experts in them um, in gender on the thing but i would just love to find that out
1: love it uh, no absolute brilliant insight um and maybe we'll get you back on another in another few weeks abby to uh to talk about that a bit more that'll be interesting to see see how that progresses and develops so fantastic right i am going to wrap it up there i'm very conscious of your time so um just a yeah phenomenal insight really really interesting and and so just to just get into a bit more detail around the same book, just on the, the chance that you're both going to speak about that was great. So uh, I'll round up the roundup. So we hope you find it useful. Thank you to my two guests for their brilliant insight. Links to all the content discussed are available in the blurb on Rugby Coach Weekly. Please subscribe, like, and share. Thanks. Thank you for listening. Wish you all the best. And-